With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. Um, this is Don't Let It Go Unheard, October 16th, 2015, and I'm your host, Amy Peekoff. This is where we discuss news, politics, and sometimes culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism is the philosophy that uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. The title for today's show is one of my typical alliterative numbers. We have heist homicides, heroes, and high wires. And I'm adding into the mix in the program notes, Hillary, Huma, and Hounds. So uh, there's other things in there as well, but go check all those out over at my blog at don'tletitgo.com. Again, that's don'tletitgo.com. And there's an extensive list of stories that I want to get to today. I do have one link at the top of the program notes, and that is a brand new video out from Eben Pagan called Digital Product Blueprint. And the first video is about how to find your big idea. Those of you who have followed me for a long time, you know that there was a small group of people that I led through Eben Pagan's course, Wake Up Productive, earlier this year. And I and the people that joined me on that little journey have found that course tremendously valuable. So valuable, in fact, there was one habit that I instilled during that course, among other habits, but one in particular that helped me to diagnose that crazy kidney problem that I keep talking about with you guys, a problem that I'm about halfway through the cure of. Um, And so it's really kind of funny that, you know, you do something like that and you don't actually know what is going to come out of it on your journey. Someday I can bore you with the whole long story about how, uh, you know, a habit of drinking water helped me to diagnose this issue. But it was it was interesting. So you don't know Um, if you're interested in either writing a book or teaching a course, creating some sort of a digital product. Pagan is probably the best in this space. As far as I know, what I've been exposed to, he is the best teacher out there. Now, again, 
you know, style is everything to a lot of people, but he packs content. So if you watch his intro video and you like his style and you're interested in learning and not re, you know, reinventing the wheel in this sort of space, I highly recommend it. So go ahead and check that link out. Um, if some of you want to take that course along with me, I would love to kind of lead another study group through that. Okay, so let's start in on heists. And it was great because right after, it was about a minute after I posted the program notes over on the Don't Let It Go Unheard page, I saw a link to this story posted by Rob Abiera. And Rob often sends me all kinds of awesome stories. And I see that we were thinking alike this morning. It's a New York Times story, and the headline is, Putting Numbers to a Tax Increase for the Rich. And the thing that got me to actually click the link to this story was that basically the New York Times had a subheading. I can't remember what the subheading was, but it was something like, oh, you know, um, even if we soak the rich more, it didn't say that, right? But it's, you know, even if we soak the rich more, then, um, actually, I'm wondering if I, I just killed volume for you guys here. Did I kill volume for you guys? Tell me if I killed volume for you guys. I've got some uh, notifications that I don't want to hear here. Anyway, so what the New York Times is saying is even if we soak the rich more, it's okay because there will be a revenue increase, right? You know, the only worry of a Democrat is that if you raise taxes, there's actually going to be a decrease in revenue. That's really their only concern. And then in the subhead, it said something like, well, they still get to keep most of their money anyway, even if we do a tax increase. So it's okay. It's fine. That is ridiculous. Anyway, go to the main article here. It's written by someone at Patricia, named Patricia Cohen for the New York Times, published today, October 16th. It says, when it comes to paying taxes, most Americans think the wealthy do not pay their fair share. Okay, so first appeal to most Americans. Whatever most Americans think is fine, right? Go ahead and vote us into Nazi Germany. It sounds awesome, as long as the majority want it. They say there's a sharp divide, however, between Republicans and Democrats when it comes to taxing the rich who provide most of the cash for political campaigns. Now, it's interesting. The rich provide most of the cash for political campaigns. And earlier, I was looking at some figures, and they were talking about Bernie Sanders has 26 million some odd. I can't remember what it is. Okay, Ted Cruz, who is one of the best-funded Republican candidates, has half that. The Democrats have far... Now, of course, there's fewer candidates, right? But imagine that the Democrats who are always talking about, oh, you know, the rich are so bad. I think rich people are giving more money to Democrats than they are to Republicans. And it would be interesting to see a breakdown of Sanders donors versus Cruz donors in terms of the average donor amount, you know, the average amount of donation, because as I understand it, Cruz has lots more of a grassroots campaign with small donations making up that 13 whatever million that he's got versus Sanders, who's, you know, very well flush with cash and 26 some odd million. Anyway, they say all the Republican tax proposals, in fact, cut taxes for the wealthiest Americans. Can you imagine? Oh, the horror, cutting taxes for the wealthiest Americans. It says Democrats, on the other hand, are prepared to raise taxes at the top, 
though they have not been very specific on how they would do so. Right now, the wealthy pay too little, Hillary Rodham Clinton said at this week's debate, and the middle class pays too much. I think everybody pays too much, right? But they say, well, what could the Tax the Rich plan actually achieve? As it turns out, quite a lot, experts say. So remember, first, she's appealing to the majority. The majority of Americans just think the wealthy don't pay enough. You know, just go with your gut. They don't pay enough. And then experts some experts that you're supposed to defer to and not actually think about the truth of the matter, you could achieve quite a lot. They say given the gains that have flowed to those at the tip of the income pyramid in recent decades, several economists have been making the case that the government could raise large amounts of revenue exclusively from this small group. So we can just scalp this small minority of people and, you know, That would help us a huge amount. And then it says, while still allowing them to take home a majority of their income. Allowing them. You can take home a majority of your income. Why should you complain that you're being totally, uh, you know, stolen from, robbed at the point of a gun? Why should you complain? Because you're going to be able to take home a majority of your income. They say uh, the experts, again, she's deferring to the experts here. It is absurd to argue that most wealth at the top is already highly taxed or that there isn't much more revenue to be had by raising taxes on the 1%, says the economist Joseph Stiglitz, who I've never heard of. Oh, he's a winner of Nobel Prize in economic science. Okay, great. He's written extensively about inequality. Quote, the only upside of the concentration of the wealth at the top is that they have more money to pay in taxes, end quote. Listen to this guy. The only upside of the concentration of the wealth at the top is that they have more money to pay in taxes. Nothing about the fact that if there is a concentration of wealth in the hands of some individual, that at least in a free economy, That signifies that the person has produced tremendous value for people. And so therefore that is measured, the value that they have provided for others is measured in the amount of money that he is able to convince them to give to him. All all it means, wealth, all wealth means to this guy is that you can grab some from them by force. And, you know, it's okay. They can still keep the majority of their income. This is disgusting. Um, Ed in the chat room says, ever see the Bill Whittle video on what would taxing the rich at 100% actually pay for? Yes, I have seen that video. It is excellent. If somebody wants to grab it and drop a link in the chat room so that others who are here live can benefit, it is a wonderful video. Uh, Whittle goes through a series of diagrams to show you that even if they tax the rich at 100%, you could not take care of the major debt problems that we have. But here's the New York Times going right along with it. And again, like I said, they start out with appeal to the majority. Hey, the majority wants this. The Republicans are standing in the way of what the majority want. And besides, the experts say that there's a lot we could, quote, achieve by stealing more from the rich. Says the top 1% on average already pay roughly a third of their incomes to the federal government, according to Treasury Department analysis. 
and this includes income tax, payroll taxes that fund Medicare and Social Security, estate and gift taxes, excise and customs duties, as well as investors' share of corporate taxes. The tax bite on the top 0.1% is a bit higher. Most of those taxpayers insist that they're already paying more than enough. By comparison, the band of taxpayers right below them in the 95th to 99th percentile pay on average about one out of every four. Those in the bottom half pay less than one out of every 10. Now, this is interesting. When they go to the other side, right, when they're talking about what they actually pay, they're just appealing to hard facts, and they're not talking about what the majority wants or what experts say. It's just how much they pay with no evaluation except for the, you know, the tax, most of the taxpayers themselves say, you know, we already pay more than enough. But it's not somebody else's opinion. It's no stamp of approval of those taxpayers' opinion. I mean, I'm here to give the stamp of approval and say that they are paying more than enough. They're paying way too much. But I don't have the reach that the New York Times does, right? The band of taxpayers right below them in the 95th to the 99th percentile pay on average about one of every $4. If you're in the bottom half, you pay less than $1 out of every 10. Um, They say sidestepping for the moment the messy question of just which taxes would be increased, how much more revenue could be generated by asking the rich to pay a larger share of their income in taxes. I hate when they use this word asking. It is not asking, it's forcing. Try not try not paying your taxes. And then you'll see if it's really asking. Uh, this is great. Ed dropped that link there in the chat room, so go check out Bill Whittle. They say raising the tax burden to say 40% would generate about $157 billion in revenue in the first year. That is assuming that these people don't shrug, okay, and decide that they're not going to continue to produce at that level. Increasing it to 45% brings in a whopping $276 billion. And they say even taking into account of state and local taxes, the average household in this group would still take home at least $1 million a year. So, you know, if you still take home at least $1 million a year, then how could you complain if we're taxing you at the federal rate of 45%? I don't know if a Democrat's going to elect it, going to be elected. I don't know if a Democrat, if elected, is going to dare try this. But I would say let them try to learn from France, even in France, where they are accustomed to thinking of themselves as subjects of the state and the collective. They balked at really high tax rates on the rich. And in fact, some people left. They had a massive exodus. So I don't know if they're going to try it. But if they do, I mean, this, you know, here they are. The Democrats are basically announcing their plans to conduct a heist on the rich. Rob says that he saw Charles Koch on Fox News interviewed by Megyn Kelly. If you want to tell us if he's had something to say about this, this so-called tax on the rich, that would be great. Uh, another headline that I saw today, which is, full of lies and is part of the heist, right? Because the heist is not just on the rich where they're planning to perhaps increase taxes on the top 1% at least, you know. Let's see what we can get. All in all, with all of the quantitative expansion, right, all of the debt that we keep posting and posting, it was funny, there was, uh, I know, uh, Keith Weiner is a well-known economist who's advocating for the gold standard, 
And he was talking about the fact that we're about to get into another debt ceiling debate. And he was saying, look, we don't have a gold standard. Therefore, debt ceiling is a meaningless idea anyway. And our money is continually being devalued. So we are all subject to a heist at the hands of our federal government who will not allow for a stable currency. But here's the headline from Wall Street Journal. U.S. posts smallest annual budget deficit since 2007. They say the deficit fell 9%. In 2015, so we're gonna we're supposed to be excited about this. If it's the smallest deficit, we're supposed to think that there's somehow this fiscal discipline being, you know, practiced by our politicians in Washington. And then you see the next headline again. Go to my blog at don'tletitgo.com. I have the sequence of all these stories I'm talking about here. The next headline is from CNS News, and in order to read the number, I had to count. Three trillion two hundred forty-eight billion seven hundred twenty-three million. They say that federal taxes set record in fiscal year 2015, twenty-one thousand eight hundred thirty-three per worker. And then they say, putting it in context, the Feds are still running a four hundred thirty-eight point nine billion dollar deficit. Uh, last week. I went through all of the weird cartwheels to describe how it is that they measure the deficit, how Obama, go go to last week's uh, program notes at don'tletitgo.com and there's like a PolitiFact article where they talk about Obama bragging, you know, that the deficits are the lowest since 2008 or whatever, which he goes around doing. The only reason they can do that is because they talk about deficits in terms of percentage of GDP and some crap, sorry. Um, I'm not going to go through those cartwheels again. My point is is that they are lying to you because they don't want you to know how much they're stealing from you by manipulating our currency the way they are. It is really bad. So they say, oh, the deficit is so low. Why? It's because they have a tax record this year. That's the only reason. It's not because there's any sort of fiscal prudence or responsibility being exercised on the part of Washington. It is all part of the heist. I've got another link over there, and it's a different sort of heist by our government. I just saw this article this morning. It's from the Wall Street Journal published yesterday. Those of you who subscribe to Wall Street Journal can read the whole thing. I actually switched my subscription from Wall Street Journal over to New York Times, so I am not able to read the whole thing. But the headline is this, Hot Startup Theranos Dials Back Lab Tests at FDA's Behest. They say, under pressure from regulators, laboratory firm Theranos Inc. has stopped collecting tiny vials of blood drawn from finger pricks for all but one of its tests, according to a person familiar with the matter which is backing away from the method the company has touted as it rose to become one of Silicon Valley's hottest startups. And if you remember, I mean, many of you have followed probably the story of Theranos. The idea of the technology is awesome. It's that to do a wide variety of routine laboratory blood tests, all you have to do is be pricked in your finger and they collect a very tiny amount of blood, which saves you from the pain, the hassle, and everything else of having a larger needle, you know, 
stuck into your vein to draw a larger quantity of blood out. That's the typical way. And apparently the FDA has come in and basically, you know, slowed down at least Theranos' progress on rolling out this awesome technology. And, you know, to me, when you get the FDA coming in with its guns for no good reason, it doesn't, as far as I know, say anything that there there is that's bad. Um, I looked over on the Theranos website, and there is a little subhead called Our Lab, and there's a whole narrative that they talk about, and it says at the very beginning that they advocate for FDA regulation of lab tests. So this is government coming in, putting pressure on what I think is some of the most exciting health innovation out there, and at least, at the very least, slowing down the progress of it, probably costing the company a lot of money and everything else. And I, again, I think this is another type of heist. This falls under heist. Just in case, you know, for grins, I went over and grabbed, you know, again, I, I want my alliterative titles. I like my alliterative titles, so heist is what I thought of. Was I, you know, justified in grabbing it? Yeah. What is heist? To take unlawfully especially in a robbery or hold-up steal. And we've got the heist of the 1% backed up by the New York Times. We've got the heist of everyone backed up by our mainstream media, backed up by our so-called economic experts and everybody who manipulates all of those data points about the deficit and the debt and the GDP and everything else. And then we have all sorts of heists regulatory heists going on all the time where our government agencies run around with government guns taking time and energy and mental power away from the innovators and creators in our country. <laughs> Rob in the chat room says you heisted it, yes. Rob says the question in my mind is how much is the news about global poverty going to undermine the statists? I would say not at all, right? Not at all, because these people evade reality all day long. And we'll see that actually in a, a little bit. I'm going to talk a bit just about Hillary. Um, I do got. A, I have a call here. I'm going to go ahead and grab it. Hi, who's this? Hi, Amy. It's Debbie. Hi, Debbie. How are you doing today? I'm all right. Um, well, I have another heist for you. I just happened oh, to hear some um, information this morning, and it has to do with, it's along the regulatory lines, uh, to do with CAFE standards. Now, mm. you know what a CAFE standard is, um, I'm sure, just that the average fuel economy of a fleet of cars put out by an auto company in any given year has to be... Some, there's some requirement that it be, like, say, 50 miles per gallon or 30 miles per gallon or whatever. Right. <laughs> well, I just found out today that there are – I found out the number of dollars that's been paid in fines for not being in compliance with CAFE standards today. Oh, wow. Yeah. $800 million. Mm. And so then what happens the is any – yeah, the auto companies pass all that on to us, right? Well, or they don't hire people, or they don't put that money into innovation, or whatever. Um, plus, the cafe standard compliant cars are usually smaller and lighter, and thus 
less safe in the uh, context of accidents. So there actually are people cite different numbers, but I've heard that the number of deaths as a result of CAFE standards is comparable to the number of people who died in the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Wow. So, um, they're taking, they've taken almost a billion dollars from the auto industry, and then they've taken tens of thousands of lives from the customers. Well, and, the and you know, if you add that also to the context, especially in California and I guess probably other big metropolitan areas in the country too, Chicago, New York, D.C., where traffic is abysmal because of the environmentalists preventing the build-out of the roads necessary to, you know, actually uh, accommodate that traffic. What do we have? Yep. We have a, tr- a true dog-eat-dog environment created out there, and people do all sorts of risky driving maneuvers. Just yesterday, yeah. I was I was driving, and it was a time of the day where, you know, there was a backup, and you wouldn't have expected there to be a backup on this one transition or whatever. And sure enough, a car goes on the shoulder to the right of all of us who are like patiently waiting to do our transition to the next freeway or whatever, and just zooms really fast right past all of us who are patiently, you know, waiting for our turn to get on the freeway. And imagine, imagine that guy certainly could have hit somebody and then you combine it with the cafe standards and the light unsafe cars. And why did he do it? Mm -hmm. He was frustrated. We are all frustrated by this. So you you put all the different ways that government is pointing guns at us and preventing us from using the free market to allocate, you know, any kind of scarce resource. And that's what you get. Yeah. Yeah, and then also just going back to the the higher taxation on the rich that, you know, the collective is so magnanimous as to allow them to still keep half of what they earn. Ugh. Um, you know, the destructiveness of that is that that's where the investment capital comes from. So talking about Silicon Valley startups, that's right. what makes them possible for people to create a new technology. It requires an immense amount of time and resources put into the development of it, especially, you know, the more complex the technology, the more time and money is required to be invested before that company can become profitable. Yep. So, you yep. know, Innovation relies entirely on um, the availability of investment capital. <clears throat> you know, this reminds me there is a meme that's being passed around Facebook right now, and I think Heritage put it out there originally. But it is a, a quote from Kennedy, from John F. Kennedy, and it just shows you how low. I was going to say how low they've stooped. I don't know just how evil the Democrats have become because oh, Kennedy, yeah. in the, in, you know, in the quotation, he recognizes that whenever you spare people taxes, right, every dollar that you spare in taxes basically is something that people can use to either create a job or invest or et cetera. And he used to understand that. And the Democrats today... No, it is the moral imperative of egalitarianism, uh, you know, and the, and the socialism that we are moving towards in this country as a result of the egalitarianism. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's ultimately a utilitarian argument, and a moral argument will trump a utilitarian argument every time. And so, you know, it's, I'm sure that of course. The, the, the lack of prominent voices 
um, just speaking up morally uh, on behalf of not the moral right of someone to keep the money that they've earned. Um, right, right. And, you know, again, it, it is it is part of Americanism to see money that is earned by individual productive effort as a good thing. In Europe, the old idea is, you know, you've got old wealth that you've inherited and et cetera, then that's the true wealth, the wealth that everybody respects. But here in America, we respect the wealth that's created by a Steve Jobs, you know, et, et cetera. And that is what we admire. So when that so-called expert cited by the New York Times says that the only thing that is good about, you know, somebody having a pile of money is that you can tax them more. It's ridiculous what the pile of money represents. If you think about it, is that that person, you know, provided tremendous value to other people, so much so that they were willing to give him money. And, it, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a store of value. It is a, you know, a symbol of value. And people just don't think it anymore. You know, they, money is for them basically a tool for them to hold power over us. And that's how Democrats see money. And at least some Republicans see money in, in the proper way. And that's the kind of Republican we need to get into office. Yeah, definitely. Yep, definitely. So um, anything else? Uh, do you got stuff on heroes and high wires and hounds and Hillary? and? <laughs> well, I heard Hillary in the debate and, um, you know, the Democrat debate. I don't know if I heard part of that. I don't know if anybody else was um, willing to subject themselves to that, but I did. And uh, yeah, she you was took, You bad. took one for the team. Um, Debbie took one for the yeah. team. Everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was. It was like. Uh, well, Chris. Chris Matthews did a pretty good job of um, challenging her on Benghazi and on the emails. <clears throat> with the, the server that she kept hidden in her bathroom. And, and her responses were ridiculous, of course. Oh, well, of course, it may not have been the best choice to keep that server loose. <laughs> but, of course, there was nothing wrong with it, and I provided 50,000 pages of emails. I've been totally transparent. Yeah. All the, all those deleted. all those printed pages, all those printed pages. Yeah. We've been through that before, right? You yeah. know, I'm so, I'm I'm so transparent. Here is a huge unindexable stack of paper. Good luck. That's transparency mm-hmm. in her mind, right? Right. And here's the emails that I didn't just delete and you can take my word for it when I say that those emails that I deleted only had personal stuff in them. Right. Just trust right. Me, right? Take my word for it. <laughs> and then uh, my, the, my favorite so gem from her was um, uh, they were talking about Wall Street and, and uh, Bernie. I keep wanting to call him Bernie Madoff. I think it's because I heard your own call him that. Bernie Sanders said um, that the business model for banks is fraud, or he might have said that the business model for Wall Street, I can't remember if it was banks or Wall Street, but their business model is fraud. And Hillary mm. chimed in and said, I went down to Wall Street in 2007 before the crisis, told them to stop foreclosing on people's houses and stop speculating. <laughs> I told them to cut it out. <laughs> I can just imagine. Like, it, it, does, does anyone actually think that's what goes on on Wall Street? 
Like there's yeah. this mysterious activity called speculating. It's basically an occult practice. And then they they just they love to foreclose on homes and throw innocent, hardworking families out in the street for the sheer pleasure of watching them suffer. And Hillary tried to stop them, but they just wouldn't listen to her. So they need to be regulated more. No, exactly. So. Exactly. Um, no, she is ridiculous. And then the latest thing that came out is that they have found another email address for Huma Abedin. And so she's potentially going to be caught in even more lies and have to try to, you know, tell another story to appease us all. But the big thing, did she actually, in the time that you were listening to the debate, did she kept going on and on about it's time to have a woman president? Not in the part that I was listening to, but I've heard that she's been doing that. Um, I didn't hear the whole thing, and and I didn't, I don't think she said anything about that at that time. So I guess that means she's endorsing Carly Fiorina. Exactly. I mean, it's just, it's got to be a woman. I mean, that's the most important thing. And so therefore, it should be, you know, if if it's not Hillary, it should be Fiorina, of course. Well, my point is, if it's got to be a woman, then it has to be Carly Fiorina, because she's the only woman running. (laughs) I don't know if Hillary counts. (laughs) <laughs> the ridiculous the ridiculous thing is and I, I what I heard is that she did bring it up a few times you know the fact that she's a woman and if you take that audience which is all democrats I think that is for them an unanswerable argument right because they actually think that that is supposed to count for something and if everybody on that stage is at least somewhat qualified she should have a huge leg up so to speak by just you know, being a female, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How can any of them yep. answer that? Well, I don't know. Um don't know that they can. I mean, I, I heard that Sanders essentially answered it in the way of, you know, saying he couldn't answer it, because I, I heard he was given the question, uh, do black lives matter or all lives matter? And he went with the black lives matter option. That's right. Yep, right. black lives matter. Not all lives, just black lives. Right, right. So, so but I mean, what about female lives? Do female lives, maybe Hillary could start like a woman's lives matter or something like that. Yeah, you know, which, uh, you know, presidential candidates matter? Do all presidential candidates matter or just female presidential candidates? You know, ask that to Sanders, and he's going to have to say female, right? But we've never had a woman president before. So how is that any different from the Black Lives Matter sort of argument, right? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So, you know, I would I would like to see the Democrats nominate, you know, basically unless she's in jail, which I understand today the results of her ever winding up in jail or the excuse me, the chances of her ever winding up in jail have decreased substantially because the latest kind of scuttlebutt is that Obama is putting a kibosh on the FBI's investigation of Hillary Clinton's email scandal. Um, If there actually has been some sort of deal that has been struck between Obama and the Clinton campaign, that is going to mean that she is just about entirely a shoe-in, I think, for the nomination. And then we're going to have to see, you know, is she going to be able to kind of pull the same thing on a national stage, uh, we know that she'll be better funded 
probably than any other Republicans because there's so many Republicans, right? Like I said, the whatever the pie is is divided up. But it seems that rich people are donating more to the Democrats. Yeah, they usually do. And, I mean, my understanding is that most, like, companies and, and individuals and so on kind of donate evenly among um, Democrats and Republicans on average. But the unions are almost 100% donating to the Democrats, and they have enormous uh, enormous yeah. amounts of money at their right. command. So it ends up resulting in that the Democrats have way more money than the um, Republicans. Yep. I agree. I agree. I So we'll have to see exactly what happens with this. There is an excellent article. I don't know if you got a chance to check it out, Debbie. It's Do Hillary Clinton's Genitals Qualify Her More? Written by Dr. <laughs> Michael Hurd. And he starts out with, uh, Do genitals determine the qualities you want in a president? And, of course, he points out the very obvious fact that if you think it would be bad to disqualify a woman because of her sex, then it's also similarly irrational to say that she is more qualified simply because of her sex. And, of course, nobody is permitted to talk about this, at least not in the Democratic debate. You know, and, and and if anything, he points out, too, you know, a lot of people are into outsider candidates this year. She is the biggest insider ever. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't think that I have an overly optimistic view of the American people, but I do not see her winning the presidency. Well, if if that's true, then what we hear about Obama putting the kibosh on that investigation today, that that's actually good news for us, right? Because if we think that the American people at large are not going to elect her, even though she's likely to get the nomination, then that's good news for us. That's good news for us. Yeah. I mean, the closest runner-up after her is Bernie Sanders, and I would like even more to see him get the nomination because there is no way they're going to vote for this crotchety old man who's a self-professed socialist. He's not going to get elected. So, I mean, I, I just don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not too concerned. I mean, I, I just honestly don't think that either of those clowns are going to get elected president. Well, we're all we're all going to find out soon enough as time goes on. And as we get closer, I guess I'm going to have to actually watch some of these Democrats a little. But I was thinking about it. I was like, I'm never going to vote for any of these people. Why do I want to put myself through the torture? But maybe I'm going to need to. I mean, after all, if Donald Trump can live tweet a you know, Democrat debate, maybe I should try it. And I could probably do a lot better job than Donald Trump. Let's, let's tell him that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Um, Great. Well, thank you, Debbie. Anything else before I go on with our stories? That's about all I had to say. Okay. You have a good rest of your day. Thanks for calling in, and we'll uh, talk to you next time. So one thing I did want to mention, and it is thanks to Jonathan Honig, who shared the link over on the Don't Let It Go Unheard page on Facebook, is we have another female candidate. So if, you know, female is your thing for a candidate, 
you are probably watching Carly Fiorina on the Republican side. Mediaite has a story. Headline is, watch Fiorina's response to man saying that Muslims should, quote, take your camel and beat it. You know, we've all seen these people who believe that because there is a problem with Islam and there is a problem with Islamic terrorism, therefore we should try to make all Muslims leave the country or we should see all Muslims, uh, you know, as an imminent security risk. She says, Carly Fiorina faced a question from a man today in Iowa who is complaining about a Muslim problem in the United States. He says, the Muslims are really raising heck right now. They want to change our whole country to suit them. If they don't like the United States, get out of here, take your camel, and beat it. And Fiorina comes back, and she speaks on behalf of the individual, judge people as individuals. This is what she says. She says she gets how frustrated people are, but at the same time, one of the most important things about the United States is, quote, we judge people as individuals. She says, and so she said, I'm not willing to condemn any group of people. I'm willing to judge each individual. Um, Now, I like this a lot. The thing that concerns me is I don't know that Fiorina fully understands the danger of Islam as an ideology. And I think that she's a little too willing, at least at this point in her kind of, uh, you know, development to consider partnering with people in the Middle East against the enemy of the moment. So we'll have to see. I would like to hear her speak out on behalf of the individual in a different context as well. So I like this a lot, and I think she's she's 100% right. Okay, So you do. You judge each person as an individual. But I also do judge any person who is a self-professed Muslim a little bit negatively because of that ideology, right? Um, I have read the Quran, and so I have some knowledge here, and um, this is, you know, so there is some negativity. Now, do you boycott and shun everybody in every context because of that? No, you don't. Um, You do judge every individual. You don't say, you know, pack on your camels and beat it or whatever this guy said. This is, you know, smacking of racism here. Um, So I do like that she talked about, you know, don't condemn as a group judge each individual. I want to see her continue that and carry that into other contexts as well. Pig fan in the chat room says that she did say the equivalent of Islam means peace after 9/11. If she did, she you know basically has to uh, worry about that. Now Ed in the chat room is saying it was a good answer by Carly. He says but I still agree with the question wholeheartedly. I don't agree with the wording of the question. Right. It's a it is a problem. There was there's a story I didn't include in today's notes. I have so many stories. Again, go to my blog. Don't let it go dot com. Even if I don't go get through all of the stories, it is worth your time to look through the collection of stuff that I got there, particularly the good news at the end. You're going to need the good news. Um, but one of the stories was that 51 percent of U.S. Muslims want Sharia law. He says, we, yeah, Ed says in the chat room, he says, we do say to any Muslim who wants Sharia law, pack up your camel and beat it. We definitely do say that. Yeah, yeah, if you're trying to institute Sharia law in this country, no, I'm not in favor. Um, You know, this idea that you think you can enslave me through democracy, that's 
just simply wrong. Um, and that's what Sharia would be. Sharia would be enslavement, particularly of women. And I most heartily disagree with it. So, no. Um, you can call yourself Muslim as long as you don't want to try to institute Sharia here. You're supposed to be trying to institute Sharia. As I read your Quran, that's what you're supposed to be trying to do. But if you want to stay here and say you're not going to do it and actually act accordingly, I am fine with that. Uh, just to give you a little bit more on the politics, there is an article in which over at 538.com, a commenter called Harry Enton, I hadn't heard of him before, Harry Enton, uh, he apparently is doing a little bit of an about face on Ted Cruz. He was very skeptical about Ted Cruz's chances of winning, and now he lists at least five reasons why you should at least think that he has a serious chance of winning. He says Republican voters like Ted Cruz a lot, that basically he is fourth on the net favorability scale. And that's at this point, right, where as they talk about, you know, Trump is uh, hogging up all the air, et cetera. Grassroots love Cruz. As I said, I would love to see statistics comparing the average amount of donation per donor for a Bernie Sanders versus a Ted Cruz. As I understand it, Ted Cruz has a lot more small grassroots support, you know, with smaller donations making up that $13 million than does a Bernie Sanders. Cruz's ideology fits today's Republican Party, they say. They say that voters uh, have clearly gotten more conservative over the years and that that is uh, reflected, of course, in Cruz's campaign and and stated views. Cruz has a lot of money. Um, actually, look at this. Cruz has raised $26 million. Oh, I was looking at this other figure. Cruz's campaign has $13.8 million in cash on hand, but over the course of the campaign, he had raised twenty-six. And a half million. Uh, Bernie Sanders in a certain period also had raised 26 million. So that's good to me. I think that's a very good sign. And again, I would like to see the comparison in terms of the average amount of donation. Maybe we'll try to dig that up. Uh, Donald Trump and Ben Carson, they have Trump and Ben Carson are regularly combining for over 40% in the early polls. But then they say that Cruz sounds like an elder statesman compared to Carson and Trump in terms of his substance. And so I guess over time, I think that he's actually going to be uh, appealing to people a lot more. So I'm I'm pretty excited maybe about his prospects. I know at the beginning, most people thought he had no chance at all. And there's a lot of people out there who are still... It's funny, there's this one guy, Ken Gardner, on Twitter, and... He put some tweet out there the other day. There's no way he's supporting Cruz, right? But he actually said that, he says, oh, well, I have to admit, I actually like what Cruz said about this one thing, and he put it out there. Uh, Ed in the chat room says, remember, there are two sources of funds. There are hard funds, which you are reporting, and super PAC funds, where Cruz is second only to Bush. That is really nice. Excellent. Um yeah, Rob says, unfortunately, too many Republicans believe in using democracy to violate rights. Yes, many of them do. Yeah, and Freedom Breeze is highlighting some of the contradictions within, you know, people calling themselves Muslim and saying that they are for, for example, free speech. Uh, by the way, there was a Stossel 
free speech spe- uh, special called Censored in America. And uh, cartoonist Bosch Faustin, who sometimes calls in this show, appeared on that special. I highly recommend that you go check out the clips. He has shared the clip in which he and Mark Stein and Ian Hersey Ali appear. And they also have a representative of CARE who tries to argue that free speech is a pillar of Islam. And to his credit, you um, have Stossel questioning her and saying, what? You know, it's only Muslims who are out there right now actually killing because of speech itself. They are the ones who are, for example, you know, hacking atheist bloggers in Bangladesh and whatever, <sighs> killing cartoonists. Um, but yeah, definitely go check that out. And, um, you know, that again, that's some of the reasons why I have a little like a qualified enthusiasm for that one quotation of, of Fiorina because it's the, the context. If you want to get a good laugh, you can read the Charles Hurt piece that I linked to from the Washington Times. The headline is, It's the Empty Lectern in a Landslide. And he humorously goes through the various reasons that an empty lectern is superior as a candidate for president to any of the candidates who appeared on stage. I remember someone in the chat room was talking about how Jim Webb what, uh, said some decent things. I mean, he's much better on foreign policy than any of the other Democratic candidates. But if he's still for soaking the rich and all those other things, we need to stop that very soon. We've got a significant debt crisis, and we don't want also to impoverish ourselves further as the rest of the world is doing. So do go check out the empty lectern as it is if I was going to be voting in the Democrat election. You know, I almost thought, because I'm in California, I thought, okay, I should just register Democrat and then, you know, you could at least try to vote for somebody who was unelectable and you could help to try to sway it, you know, like I'd vote for Sanders or something. And then uh, I was talking with a friend about it, and my friend said, you know, if you actually register as a Democrat, you're giving them sanction that you probably don't want to give them. I said, yeah, you're probably right. You are probably right. Freedom Breeze about the Stossel production here in the chat room. Uh, they say, interviewing Bosch Faustin, showing his uh, infamous cart- contest-winning cartoon. Yes, that was amazing. They showed the cartoon, I think, three times or something I saw in that clip. No other major news network had shown the cartoon before that. The only thing that you ever saw was I think on Fox Business they showed a billboard one time, and I think it was by accident. And here you see Stossel proudly showing it three separate times, so you know it's deliberate. It was truly, truly amazing. Um, Just Jean says, I don't think the empty lectern would raise our taxes. Yeah, I, I mean, an inert object is so much better than any Democrat you know, Democratic candidate for president and a lot more attractive, the empty lectern, you know, even if it's kind of an older beat up lectern. Yeah, Justine says also the uh, Stossel special is great. Oh, California primaries are open, says Ed. You don't need to register. Hell, you don't even have to be a citizen anymore. Yeah, I saw that story. You know, it's interesting. Um, uh, What's his name? Jerry Brown signed into law something that basically paved a way whereby illegal aliens could vote in California. It's not guaranteed that they'll be able to because supposedly people are supposed to be doing their jobs and preventing them. But if you allow 
uh, voter registration as a matter of course, and the people who receive their registrations don't do their job of trying to figure out whether this person is legal or illegal, you're going to have a whole bunch of illegal aliens voting in the election, and that is uh, terrible. Oh, uh, Pigpan in the chat room says that the Fox business showing of the Muhammad cartoon was on purpose because it was Lou Dobbs. Okay, well, that's good if if he was actually showing it because some people thought it was kind of on the billboard and the news story was not the contest itself. The news story was about the billboards, you know, the billboard campaign that maybe it was uh, not quite, you know, deliberate on his part. So let's go into homicide. We had we had the heist, had a little bit of a political interlude there, and let's go into homicides here. The big news in homicide this week, unfortunately, are a number of homicides in Israel. The latest headline that I saw was over at New York Times, and the the headline that got me to click again, this was on their homepage, was you know there was a number of murders. Or no, there was a number of stabbings in Israel, and that this angered the Israelis, as if like you know somehow anger was something that you're adding. That that the fact that they were angry, or or the the big story is that they were angry, not that there were stabbings. Bizarre. Let me see if I can actually find the. Um, oh, that was the wrong way to do it. Sorry, I'm going to get this. Um, I'm going to go to the homepage at the New York Times website and see if I can find you. Yeah, okay. It says, arson at shrine and knifing outrage Israelis. It makes it seem like the story is the outrage of the Israelis, not the horrible fact that these so-called Palestinians are committing acts of arson and knifing and killing all of these Israelis. It is disgusting, the New York Times coverage this morning. So again, you know, they were misrepresenting the whole issue with the taxes. They are heavily slanted on soaking the rich. And then they are obviously slanted against the Israelis because of the way you see them reporting this story. It says, dozens of Palestinians set fire at dawn on Friday to a holy site known as Joseph's Tomb. In the quote, Palestinian Authority controlled city of Nablus in the West Bank, damaging the tiny stone compound that many Jews believe to be the final burial place of the son of the biblical patriarch Jacob. Says the fire punctuated another day of anti Israel protests. Anti Israel protests. That's what's been going on, is just anti Israel protests. Not a whole bunch of murders, cold hearted, disgusting, no excuse for them murders. It's anti-Israel protests by Palestine, you know, Palestinians. The, the, pro, the protests left at least four dead and dozens injured. You know, again, people don't read all the way down. Sometimes the New York Times will give you the truth of what actually went on like later in the story. But if you read up to here and you say, oh, there's protests and it left four dead and dozens injured, you think maybe there were large crowds and there was a stampede. And who was dead? I mean, you know, there's a protest. Maybe some of the Palestinians were dead as well. You know, who's the four dead and the dozens injured? And and by what means? They don't tell you yet. It's, it's you know, the, the passive voice that left at least four dead and dozens injured. Homicide, pure and simple. Children as targets. 
parents as targets right in front of children. This is disgusting. Um, Abbas of the Palestinian Authority condemned the arson as, quote, irresponsible. Yeah. You know, we know you want to say more, but, you know, you just can't bring yourself to say it, right, Abbas? And then finally, as you go on down, they say the desecration of the tomb was met with outrage in Israel. Of course it was. It follows a wave of Palestinian stabbing attacks against Israelis. So if you scroll down enough in the story, then you get, you know, at least some of the truth. They say, as well as deadly clashes between Palestinians and Israeli security forces. Deadly in what sense, blah, blah, blah. And of course, they can't just leave. You know, there's a wave of stabbing attacks against Israeli on its own in a sentence. They have to follow it on in the same sentence with, as well as deadly clashes between Palestinians and Israeli security forces. And there in the deadly clashes, it doesn't tell you for whom it was deadly or why or what was going on, right? It implies that it leaves you to think, oh, maybe the Israelis had something to do with this. Maybe they were guilty. And in fact, that is what our own John Kerry tried to say. Uh, Kerry, to his disgrace, has come out you know, with something, this, some statement this week where he says that the Jewish settlements blame for the Palestinian terror spree. The mere fact that they're there, you know, it's like the, the, the women are responsible if they're raped, if they're wearing the short skirts, and the Jews are apparently to blame for merely existing and going about their daily business, men, women, children, whatever age, it doesn't matter, you know, the guy, he had an urge to stab somebody and he had a knife in his hand and he couldn't help it. It is disgraceful that someone at a high level of our uh, administration, our president's administration, John Kerry, that he would say this on behalf of the United States. It is disgusting. I, You know, no wonder that people are calling for his resignation from the position of Secretary of State. It is disgusting. Um, there was a more kind of a sign of people trying to mischaracterize what's going over going on over in Israel right now. I've got a link to a story from the Blaze, and the headline is this: The moment an MSNBC anchor has to correct a reporter on air when he makes a false leading assertion about a Palestinian terrorist. And the assertion was that uh, there was no weapon in the hands of this Palestinian terrorist. They tried to say, you know, the guy was lying there and he had no weapon at all. And sure enough, there's all sorts of footage saying that he charged at them and showing that he charged at Israelis with a knife. So on air, even MSNBC had to correct its own reporter, its own journalist, and said, no, there is a photo. It shows the guy with a knife in his right hand and then another object in his left hand. Uh, This is what uh, Jose Diaz-Balart had to actually say. He said, quote, we can clearly see the man with what appears to be, at least in his right hand, a knife. And I see the picture actually here. So go to my blog, don'tletitgo.com. You can see for yourself But nonetheless, an on-air reporter from MSNBC was trying to put over on the public the idea that the poor Palestinian terrorist was unarmed. Pigfan says that this particular MSNBC reporter is notorious for anti-Jewish, pro-Palestinian activism. 
And Trevor in the chat room says, you know, but Amy, facts get in the way of the narrative. Yeah, facts are getting in the way of the narrative all the time, and they're trying to fudge the facts, and that is harder and harder to do. Ed's got some news on the Syria front. I don't know if I'm going to have time to actually check out the link, but thanks for sharing that there in the chat room. Um, I guess there's some murder going on, some homicide, and that would be relevant to this. But yeah, um, homicide going on in Israel, predominantly among other places. And here we are, we have our own news media in the United States covering up the vicious nature of what is being done by the so-called Palestinians over there. And uh, John Kerry, I mean, that is just disgraceful. Anybody who listens to this show knows that John Kerry does not speak on my behalf when he says that the Jewish settlements are to blame. And I assume that most educated people in Israel know that we don't uh, agree with Kerry. Now, here's where we talked about heroes. <laughs> Pig fan says, are we going to get to Snowden and Black Lives Matter? Yeah. So Snowden has been touted as a hero. And up until recently, I'm at least thinking with you know very good cause, I continue to agree with Snowden's main project, which, as I understand it, was to inform Americans and other you know people throughout the world about what our NSA is doing in terms of bulk data collection. Again, you know, I've studied privacy for more years than I care to actually admit. I wrote my PhD dissertation, you know, dissertation on privacy, and uh, even before Snowden came out with his revelations, I had come up with a theory about how to eliminate what they call the so-called third-party doctrine, and it is the third-party doctrine that purports to make all of this NSA bulk data collection legal. So I have, you know, sort of a big background with this, and. I agree based on the facts as I know them that the Snowden leak of this bulk data collection program is what you know was a good thing and that it was necessary to inform Americans and introduce this element of accountability. We would not have the cases that are moving on their way up to the Supreme Court uh, with respect to bulk data collection without Snowden's leaks. Accountability would not have happened. I mean, as if you if you guys heard my interview um, uh, with John Bolton. John Bolton was saying about these programs, he says, well, all three branches of government signed off on it. You know, who died and made Snowden King? Who is he to, you know, go out there and, and show this to the American people? And if it's really true that all three branches of government signed off on it, and as many people are you know, uh, kind of verifying Snowden could not have received whistleblower protection that, in fact, he most likely would have had some sort of retaliation if he had tried to expose this stuff. Um, I think the way, you know, the way he did that is what he had to do. But then recently he started a Twitter account. And the uh, Twitter account recently in the last several days has had so much to disappoint and in addition, there are um, there's a one disappointing leak that came out, which is this Snowden leak. This is from the Jer Jerusalem Post, and again, all these links are at don'tletitgo.com. Go to don'tletitgo.com and get all the stories. Snowden leak: Israeli commandos killed Syrian general at dinner party. So Snowden, I guess, 
revealed the manner in which the some Israeli commandos had killed a, a Syrian general at a dinner party. So, you know, it sounds like something out of a James Bond movie or whatever, but the commandos did this. Um, this smacks of anti-Israel sentiment, of course. Why would you expose something that they most likely had the total right to do? Um, Israel is fighting for its life over there, and they need to continue to conduct these types of operations among all sorts of other operations in order to defend themselves. I'm a strong supporter of Israel. So this idea that he puts this leak out there and reveals a you know sort of clandestine uh, operation against a Syrian general, I think it is terrible. Um, I assume that he gave permission for it, but I keep seeing everything I'm seeing from Snowden. It sounds more like Greenwald than it does like the original Snowden that I saw. So maybe the original Snowden wasn't the real Snowden. And now only now we're seeing the real Snowden because here's another one. You may have seen the other day. Drudge actually made a big mistake on this because Drudge had this huge headline that Snowden revealed the details of uh, uh, the U.S. drone program. And it wasn't Snowden, it's somebody else. Um, And the Intercept articles that Drudge linked to clearly say that they aren't releasing the name of the person, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But nonetheless, even though Snowden did not leak those things. He didn't have access to those particular documents as far as we know. It was, you know, the the Israeli, the link about the Israeli operation was because of NSA uh, data that he had. So he didn't have all the, you know, operation details of, of the drone documents. But even though Snowden was not the one who leaked this data, this data that I do not think should be leaked, and I'll explain more about that in a second, um, Snowden praised the leaking of this on his Twitter account. And to me, this is profoundly disappointing. And let me give you, uh, you know, a distinction. Why do I think that we should be in favor of Snowden having leaked, you know, leaked the data on the NSA program versus this? Um, So far as I know, there is not any, you know, kind of program where there is indiscriminate or even discriminate drone attacks against Americans, uh, particularly on American soil, right? Um, The drone operations are being done as part of a legitimate war effort to fight Islamic terrorism. Now, there may be some mishaps or wrong judgment calls that have been made. Uh, Maybe there's some sloppy policy. I don't know what there is, but my point is is that there – It's an overall valid operation, and it is an operation conducted in the context of a legitimate war, and they're doing things, you know, as far as I know, that, you know, they're going after targets that they're entitled to go after in the context of a war that we should have declared long ago, right? So to me, you know, and again, someone who's a military expert can dig into it better, but at least for me, I want to be very skeptical of the propriety of leaking something like this. I would never jump and say, oh, great, you know, because there may be some wrongdoing in there. There may not. But you've got something that to me seems mostly a legitimate tool to use in a valid war. 
By contrast, if you are going to Verizon and saying that we're going to collect all the metadata on all Americans, all Verizon customers, no matter what, no particularized suspicion, no involvement in war efforts, blah, 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 that is clearly wrong. And to me, I can clearly say, yes, I am in favor of Americans being able to know about that program and being able to serve as a check on the authority of our government and file the appropriate lawsuits now that we have standing because we know about it. Um, This is important. So there is a clear distinction between these two, and I'm highly disappointed in Snowden um, hailing the link of the drone documents. Pigfan is putting the tweet here in the chat room. If you want to protect your rights, Oh, oh yeah, you've got to protect the rights of others, social justice and common sense, blah, blah, blah. Oh, are you t- are you talking about the other tweet, the uh, the Black Lives Matter tweet? This is just one of the few disappointing things that I've gotten from Snowden this week. Another one, I put in the program notes, I embedded a tweet where Snowden agreed to do some sort of a public conversation you know, maybe over Skype or who knows what, you know, where they broadcast it with this guy, DeRay. There's this guy, DeRay, on Twitter who is a Black Lives Matter activist. I'll leave other people to go ahead and, you know, talk more about how horrible he is. But here's Snowden basically saying, yeah, I'm going to, you know, go ahead and align myself with the Black Lives Matter movement, which is a clearly collectivist and racist movement. It is complete, you know, and his idea is like, oh, we have to band together in order to protect individual rights. No, you may be able to form a common cause in terms of people all acting towards a common goal, but that is very different from saying we are going to judge people by the color of their skin and put some movement together, first of all, based on sort of an anarchist bent right, to, you know, always think that police are bad, you know, corrupt police, good police, whatever, they're all bad, Um, and also to incite violence against the police, right? Um, You know, it's one thing for you to say, okay, there is some corruption in the police departments, and let's go ahead and make sure that those corrupt officers get their justice. But to go out there and imply that, you know, all the policemen are racist, that they all deserve to be killed and actually they have incited violence against innocent officers who are just sitting there like at a gas station pumping gas for Snowden to align himself with that it is extremely disappointing I'm not calling him a hero anymore Um, what I would say is you know releasing the NSA data you could call that heroic but I'm, I'm so disappointed with all of this and let me tell you in the back of my mind what I've been thinking, I mean, you know, first of all, um, some people are wondering whether the Snowden account is the Snowden account. Uh, they have been observing that he's often tweeting at two or three in the morning Russia time. Now, of course, he might be a night owl, so that doesn't really say anything. But to me, this seems so different from Snowden the Patriot. He seems so eager to um, undermine, to subvert. American foreign policy and the foreign policy of our strong ally Israel, that he's sounding a lot more like uh, Glenn Greenwald than he is like the Snowden that at least 
I thought he was. You know, I thought, oh, it's unfortunate that he chose Glenn Greenwald, but at least he's probably better. And now it sounds like he is really bad. Um, question, is this account really, you know, kind of controlled by Greenwald? Do we have a Snowden? If you've read Atlas Shrugged, there's a Dr. Robert Stadler. I'm not saying that, you know, Stadler, who is, you know, at least at one point had, had been heroic. It's not that Snowden accomplished so much. But, you know, Snowden had this good aspect about him, which is that he wanted to let Americans know about this unconstitutional NSA bulk data collection program. And then the question, and that and that's why he's famous, right? That's how he got his name. And now that name is being used to destroy what I think are good things about America and American foreign policy. And I wonder if it's Greenwald playing the Floyd Ferris, you know, in, in my analogy here. So you've got Snowden as Stadler and you've got Greenwald as Floyd Ferris and maybe Putin, you know, playing a role in there too, holding something over on Snowden and basically he can't say anything on his own behalf anymore. I don't know. Um, Motive Power says when you hear him, he sounds way different than in his Twitter version. I agree. Um, you know, I am a strong believer and everybody's got to decide for themselves. And when I've watched interviews with Snowden, he seemed so much more pro-American and earnest a little bit, you know, a couple of things he'd say here or there. But when you see him here on this Twitter account, I'm thinking this is disgusting and, and it, it sounds more like Greenwald than it does Snowden. So everybody will have to figure it out. I don't know what is going on there. Um, he was not the one who leaked the news of the drones. Drudge made a huge error. I actually tweeted out to Drudge. I said, you know, how did you do that? Because, And I don't know if he took it down because me and other people maybe also tweeted him. But that Intercept article doesn't cite Snowden as the source of the leak. But nonetheless, on Twitter, they have Snowden praising it. And it's really sad. Let's go ahead and talk about some good news on Heroes. And the good news on Heroes is this week over at Front Page Magazine, Daniel Greenfield wrote a extended review and just wonderful substantive and elaborate and extensive praise for Bosch Faustin's uh, Pigman comic, The Infidel, featuring Pigman number three. And the headline is Fighting Jihad in a Politically Correct Comic Book World. And I have linked to the review. I urge you to go ahead and read the entire thing for yourself. But you know, if I mean, I've linked to Greenfield a few times on this show. And if you've read Greenfield, he is an excellent writer. And he is very, very perceptive in terms of seeing the importance of this sort of thing in the culture. Uh, he starts out like this. He says, superheroes have never been more culturally dominant than they are in the age of the billion-dollar Marvel or DC blockbuster and have never been less relevant. So they're culturally dominant and they're irrelevant. And why is it? He says, the emotional momentum of the idealism of Superman creators Siegel and Schuster Batman creator Bob Kane being viciously beaten up as a boy and fantasizing about vigilante justice have died out, leaving behind, you know, in the realm of comics, he says, a lifeless cast of familiar characters owned by movie studios going through the same routines, dying and being reinvented just long enough to become the same thing all over again. 
And he says, if anybody actually set out to reinvent the superhero to make him relevant to the world we live in today, then it would be with this infidel comic. Um, And he says, you know, long before the Muhammad contest, that Bosch has been a voice for truth and freedom in a field where conservative voices are underrepresented. And he he says that whereas Frank Miller's Holy Terror was one of the few anti-Jihad comics, DC first of all refused to allow Batman to appear in it, and also it was a muddled work in and of itself. Uh, By contrast, writes Greenfield, Faustin's Pigman, he says, summons up Miller in his prime. And that is a, I mean, just a really, uh, you know, a, a comparison I think that, you know, Bosch really likes because Miller was one of his heroes. They say the infidel number three featuring Pigman is Faustin's Dark Knight Returns. It's where his ambitious, complex story comes into its own. And he describes some of the plot and everything. Um, and uh, then, you know, and again, go ahead and, and look to see the description. Many of you are familiar with the, the basic kind of plot line. But he says, opponents would like to dismiss the infidel as propaganda. But Faustin's work isn't just powerful and compelling. It's also surprisingly nuanced about human realities. Duke and Pigman swiftly cut through the apologetics for Islam because they understand what is at stake. Not because they think the world is simple or can be easily remade into what it should be without paying a price. End quote. I think that is a brilliant formulation there. So you cut through the apologetics, not because you think the world's simple, you can easily remake it into what the world should be without paying a price, simply because they understand what is at stake, our survival's at stake. And they understand that. He says, that is the timeless theme of great superhero stories, and it's why Infidel's closest parallel is Frank Miller's Dark Knight. Anyway, I recommend going to read the uh, review. And if you haven't gotten it yet, go ahead and get the comic itself. I don't know that you could ever get a better recommendation than this. Um, go check it out over at Front Page Magazine. So that is Heroes. That is the the better side of heroes. Now, again, predominantly out there in the culture today, heroes are meant, you know, taken to mean whatever you see in Marvel and DC movies, which is a mixed bag at best. Sometimes there's some good stuff in there. Uh, the Captain America movie was was one of them, but really, what we see here is, I think, something that you've seen along the lines with um, Alex Epstein's book on environmentalism. You're not seeing it in as big a way yet, but we have some important people in the culture realizing that this is really what a superhero should be doing. And you thereby are seeing what I'm calling acceleration of the culture in the proper direction. So even though our culture is still you know, lauding Miss Marvel and all of the Muslim superheroes and then turning all of the superheroes to be either black or female or gay or whatever, you know, is the fashion du jour. Um, They keep restarting, you know, it's Captain America number one again, you know. Um, But 
what you've got here, you know, yeah, you've got the, the culture moving in the wrong direction. That's the direction of the velocity. If you had your little velocity vector, it's still going in the wrong direction. But if you saw where the momentum and the acceleration is, there's just the slow bit of resistance there starting to move in the right direction. And really, those of us who are living here today, this is, the I think, the best that we can hope for. It was It's really great. Of, to, you know, Greenfield is such a perceptive writer for him to write, you know, such a, I think, accurate, in-depth, and, um, you know, full of praise review for, for the infidel. Other good news of the week. And this one, um, I believe, was sent to me maybe by Freedom Breeze. I, I, I can't remember, actually. Um this is a story out of Cornell. They say, Help, hopefully Cornell's president's free, free speech stance sets a trend. Calling herself an avid supporter of free speech, Elizabeth Garrett, Cornell's university's new president, came out firmly against politically correct censorship last week. Hallelujah. Meeting with several reporters at a Cornell Club breakfast, Garrett said, quote, a university is about the fullest and freest expression of ideas and arguments. There isn't any idea that ought not to be tested and questioned because that's how we get closer to the truth. We're about reason, rationality, debate. So if you disagree with someone, the answer isn't to shut them down. I don't believe there should be any limits on the substance of freedom of speech at a university, end quote. And I would add to that, or anywhere, right? Um, freedom of speech is freedom of speech. Now, if you have uh, private property and you want to say, okay, there's things you can't say on my property, okay, fine. But in terms of government shutting down anybody, no, university or otherwise. But I am uh, pretty excited about that, that she came out for that. I've got a phone call I'm going to go ahead and grab here. Hi, this, is the, this, this is challenging big picture stuff. It's material that most, hello? Hello? Oh, oh I, was, I was reading Daniel Greenfield's piece, sorry. Hello, Bosch, how are you? Oh, I was, I was in the middle of reading Daniel Greenfield's piece, sorry. Rereading it, actually. So how many times have you read that piece? <laughs> three. Only it's, three times? It's better. It's better than most comics. I'm sorry. It's better than almost all comic books today. His review of my comics is better than most comics. And I'm not joking. <laughs> right. So, right. Look, I mean, look, man, this guy is so good. He's one of the most astute, I mean, laser-focused thinkers in the midst of what we're going through since Obama, since 9-11. And just gets to the heart, gets to the truth, cuts to the bone like no one does on a daily basis. I agree. You know, I agree. One, and I, he, I yeah. highly urge people either go to front page magazine directly if you want to read it, but always, you know, I always encourage you. Yeah, it's to called uh, fighting. It's called fighting jihad in the politically correct comic book world. Uh, Tales right. from the comic book infidel on the grind. Just, just one thing. I was just reading it before. I'm sorry. Um, the infidel is uncompromised not only in its violence, but in its refuse to back down from the truth. Uh, mm-hmm. He says this, this is challenging big picture stuff. It's material that most creators wouldn't tackle, not only for political reasons, but because it's so hard to pull off. And right. yet, Faustin does it. His art is dynamic. I just, it's incredible uh, to have a guy like him, a thinker like him, yep. to write something like this about my book is just incredibly gratifying. And exactly. if anyone's now, on the fence um, about it, if anyone's on the fence about my series, check out his thing. It might yeah, do to, do check out the check review, out. and that's that's definitely going to make you want to go ahead and grab the comic pig fan. 
just drop the link to the front page mag thing here in Thanks, the chat time. room at Blog Talk I'll Radio. But again, I've got, I've got the link for those of you who are listening to the podcast. Go over to my blog, don'tletitgo.com, and get all of these stories. Um, I want to run through a few of the good news stories. You want to hang on for this? Sure, talk? definitely. Okay, so... Um, First of all, even though I sit while I do this show, apparently that is not going to make my death more imminent, according to a new study. Remember, they've been saying that sitting is the new smoking. Now, it turns out for me right now, because of my weird kidney condition, that sitting is not that great because my kidney doesn't drain as well when I sit a lot, and that's one of the ways that I... Sorry, yeah. sorry. This is a government study because they don't want us to stand. They want us to sit. You know what I mean, they don't want. You know what I mean, they don't want us to take a stand. <laughs> Joking, go on. Right, right. On. Um, but yeah. So, so those of you who who are worried that you couldn't sit, you were going to imminently just right. like, you know, knock off and and die. You may not. Um, something else that you do need to check out. Check out the link with. And this is what it says. It says, "Why do I make less than my male co-stars?" And it's Jennifer Lawrence talking about yes there is sort of this culture in hollywood where women are paid less than men and if women demand to be paid what they're worth they're seen as bitchy and this and you know divas and blah 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 but really she says it's not and she does not call for government to come in and mandate that females be the pay you know paid the same as males which is i understand what they're trying to do in hollywood right now in california but instead she is talking about the fact that she needs to be, be more confident in herself, that she needs to know her own worth better and stand up for herself and demand that bigger paying contract. So kudos to her again. You you see these little things as just like a small sign that there is an acceleration of in the culture in the right direction. Coming in and saying, also. you know, yeah, we're going to call out, we're going to call out the sexists, but at the same time, I'm going to blame myself for not demanding more for my contract. And it's fitting that she says it because she's she makes movies, she stars in films that make a ton of money. Right. You know, and she's the star in yes. those in those films. So that's you know she's that's the excellent. Point. She's really good. And she's a great actress too. So let's just hope that she stays good and and healthy and everything else. You know, we well, saw that. According the, to a, according to John Nolte at Breitbart, he trashed her because of it trying to say she's whiny and whatnot. And she was great before this, which is pathetic. She's a great actress. Her, mm-hmm. her movies make a ton of money, and she probably doesn't make as much as a man would in that particular position. And where where she should. She uh, should make the bulk of whatever the stars make in that movie. Exactly. Exactly. She should be you know, treated as, as comparable. Another piece of good news, a top physicist, Freeman, on, uh, Freeman Dyson is his name, on Obama. He says Obama has picked the wrong side on climate change. So it is good to at least see one top scientist. Remember the you know, the president of Sierra Club was telling Ted Cruz, I'm with the ninety seven percent, you know, who believe in anthropogenic climate change. But it says the climate models used by alarmist scientists to predict global warming are getting worse, not better. Carbon dioxide does far more good than harm, they say, and President Obama has backed the, quote, wrong side in the war on climate change. This is one of the world's greatest theoretical physicists, Dr. Freeman Dyson, British-born, naturalized American citizen, worked at Princeton University as a contemporary of Einstein, advised the U.S. government on a wide range of science and technical issues. He did an interview 
with the register and expressed his despair at the current scientific obsession with climate change. And he says, it's, quote, not a scientific mystery, but a human mystery. How does it happen that a whole generation of scientific experts is blind to the obvious facts, end quote? And what it, how it happens is because of the attitude that was displayed by the president of the Sierra Club, who said over and over like a broken record to Ted Cruz that even if you put the facts in front of him that refuted the climate change model, that in effect he wouldn't change his mind, that he would go with the 97%. So this is kind of full circle here because at the beginning I talked about a New York Times article in which they just said, you know, the majority is in favor of taxing the rich, you know, soaking the rich, and that somehow that meant something. And somehow the 97% of government-funded scientists, which is what most scientists are these days, the fact that 97% of them think something is supposed to mean something. Or not even that they think it, but that they say it, right? I can't believe they think it. So, um, I have got one uh, H that I haven't talked about yet, and that is high wires. And I encourage everybody to go out and see the movie The Walk, um, you saw that movie, Bosch? Oh, yes. Yeah. On IMAX uh, also. You saw it on IMAX. I just saw it on the regular. I couldn't handle the um, the IMAX. I think it I was... It was my truly my edge, of, edge of your seat. The yeah. It is edge I mean, of I, well, your seat, literally. I was on the literally. edge of my seat in the regular theater, not that. <laughs> it's crazy. Anyway, what I wanted it's to so highlight, I, I, um, I linked to a two-part article that was an interview with Philippe Petit, who actually, you know, performed the walk in 1974. The walk between the Twin Towers. The walk between the Twin Towers, the World Trade Center. And by the way, I was retweeted by by Petit. But what you need to do when you go and read this, I've only got 90 seconds left, darn it. Um, Please go read this interview and pay particular attention to the mindset, to his preparation to his discussion about training Joseph Gordon-Levitt to have pride in himself and a rebellious spirit. It is really awesome to see. So definitely go check that out. And then finally, the one last thing is hounds. Not really hounds, but dogs. Uh, Check out Sylvia Turkman, who just completed the uh, gold medal at the FCI International World Agility Championships. She is amazing, and that will make you smile to watch just such expertise in action, and it's so fast. So um, everybody go to my blog, don'tletitgo.com. Check out all the awesome links from today's show, and I'll see you here same time next week. Uh, Bosch, thanks for calling. We've got about 30 seconds. One last thing. Okay, Daniel Greenfield said, uh, the infidel is the only truly relevant post-9-11 comic. And uh, i got to say, I know it's talking myself, but it's absolutely true, which is sick. But, you know, there, there's no other ones. But anyway, there was, a, there was Holy Terror by Frank Miller and other ones, yep. but they didn't cut to the bone. All right. Thanks, Okay. Everyone. Ten seconds. Got to go. Thanks a lot. Thanks for calling. We'll talk next week. Take care.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.